This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, let's ask the Lord's presence. Dear Father, thank you so much that we are part of a golden thread of truth that has been handed down towards, uh, through the generations and looking towards your second coming. Lord, we want to be as faithful as the reformers were. We want to be bold, courageous, and have the conviction that they have. But Jesus, we can't do this on our own. There's nothing we can do. We're small and feeble and, and weak. We really, really need your power. We really need your word. We need to memorize it. We need to know it so that this conviction will penetrate every cell of our body. We know this is what we want to live and die for. And that we are willing to do this because we are going to see you and your face soon to be coming to make things right. Please be with us this afternoon for one more lecture. Help us to stay awake and give us the mental stability and energy and help me um, to have the presence of mind. Use my lips. Speak your words through me, Lord. It's what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Art as artillery. The papal counter-reformation. Now, I say this with a little bit of a clause because really the counter-reformation effort in art started after the Council of Trent. So... I'm going to start a little earlier than that, so we'll just lump it together, but it's not really all counter-reformation. I want to first, just because I believe in the power of art, and I want to share that power with you, I know it's a lot to learn. There's a lot you have to learn to really use art and to understand art sometimes, but really it's not rocket science, okay? So I'm going to give you just a few tips and guess what? As Seventh-day Adventists, we actually know a lot about art, and I'll tell you why. Um, but God is the ultimate artist, right? God is an amazing artist. He is the ultimate artist where we get all of our ideas from because all of art comes from nature. We get these things from God, and we remix it into our own experience, and we express our ideas and it's an amazing thing that we can take part in this thing called creativity, right? Um, we do it, some of you like writing poetry, some of you like writing music, and some of you like the visual arts. But God is an amazing visual artist. And if you look at the heavens, what does the Bible say? The heavens declare, yeah, the glory of God. Um, and it also says in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. So God has an amazing power because His Word can make things happen. And in that sense, I wish that would be much easier for me as an artist. Man, I have an idea. Just speak it, and boom. But we have to create it and work at it. Um, but what I want to get to is that 
Nature reveals God as an artist, Christ as an artist. And Christ does this because he's showing us his love for us. His art, by default, shows us his mind, shows us about his character. Um, there's actual in art, the Fibonacci uh, rule, I don't know if you, yeah, uh, there's actually something that keeps repeating itself in nature. And you see this repetition throughout. And you know that whoever designed this is the same person. It keeps repeating itself. And when God placed us here, he didn't just place us haphazard in an ugly place. He made it into a garden. He made it into a beautiful place. So aesthetics is important to God. Beauty. Actually, there's a discipline called neuroaesthetics. Now, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a psychiatrist, so this is like a little bit stepping out of my comfort zone, but it's from the University of Emory where I went to. There's a lot of research, and they're saying that beauty heals the mind. But you can sense that when you're walking in nature. You get energized. You get energized, and, and you, you feel at peace. There's a beauty of nature is very healthy, um, and God is the artist, and God has his signature. And in the seventh day of creation, and I don't know if you've ever seen an artist working, but if you've seen an artist working, they're working and they're working, whatever they're doing, sculpture, painting, and then they step back and they're looking at it a little bit, and they look at it. And then they're like, no, it, it needs something. It's not finished. I'm going to work at it a little bit more. Then they step back and they're looking at it like, yeah, that's good. That's it. That's good. It's done. At which point, which actually is a very tricky thing, because sometimes if you work, overwork your art, you ruin it. You did too much. You're supposed to stop. There's a perfect balance, a perfect time to stop. Enough, you know? Um, but once you do that, Yesterday, actually, I was walking towards my hotel, and there was a man, and he was a poet. And he gave me a poetry while I bought it from him for $10. And then he says, well, let me sign it, right? What do you look for an original in an original piece of work? You look for the signature. If you have the signature of an artist, it just, it's personal, it's meaningful, it's the actual artist's hand saying, I declared it finished. This is finished. When God finished his seven-day creation, he signed it. He signed it with the seventh-day Sabbath. And he, he put his signature on the Sabbath, and he has asked us to engage in being his creation again and again every Sabbath. Engage in this act of love between us and our maker, between creature and creator. And the Garden of Eden um, is still around. I mean, if you think about it, now I'll just side note again. I went to Florence. Love art, love, love, love art. So I'm standing in front of Michelangelo's David, and I knew about Michelangelo's struggles. He was going through, he actually was influenced by the Protestant Reformation. And... Um, and I, art does this. You just become overwhelmed and you almost want to cry in the presence of something like that. In a painting, sometimes it just moves you. Um, and after that, we went to the Dolomite Mountains in Italy. And all of a sudden, we're hiking. And I'm thinking, you know what? No matter 
what, no matter who, the best art in the entire world will never ever come even close to these mountains, to the powerful imagery that God surrounds us with. It's just amazing. It's so exciting. So where does art come from, right? We've established that it comes from God, but through nature. So basically what artists do is they study nature. Art is the language about the truth about nature, which is basically you're studying God through his creation. Um, now, Mrs. White says at one point that sometimes in nature you can see the evidence of sin. And so in that case, you need to interpret it. That, that the great controversy and the, 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 the battle's real. Um, but most of the time, we get all of our inspiration from, from nature. It communicates on a, a gut level. So that's why when you, you do go to a movie, you come out sometimes with tears in your eyes. It, it, it mixes intellectual, emotional, and that's what we are. We're holistic. We're not just intellectual. We're intellectual, emotional, physical, all of these things. So art, music... That's more of an emotional side of the human nature. Um, but it's instinctive, and we artists usually are more in touch with this instinct of nature and in touch with ourselves. And also sometimes art talks about our current status in society. But if you look at, for instance, the picture that I have there, what do you feel when you see a rainy day? Do you feel like going out? now you feel like going in how many of you feel like reading a book yeah you know cuddling in or feeling a book um the color blue usually there's there's studies that says that people that don't see sunshine for a long time get depressed there's a little bit of there's this blue you know um it's cold these are things that basically are color theory okay we study these things and then we incorporate them into the art so that they can communicate um with, with people on that visceral level. Um, how do we peel back? Art history is peeling back. So I want to give you these skills so you can kind of go to a museum maybe and have fun trying them out. Um, you peel it back, and guess what? This concept is actually in the Bible. But here, um, there is a method that I use with my students. It's called the Feldman method. It's older, but it still works. It's basically saying, um, the art criticism format has in common a more or less linear step-by-step -step approach in which steps build upon each other. Undoubtedly, Feldman's method consisting of describe what you're seeing. Go to a, go to a museum and describe it. If you want, get, never take a pen to a museum. They don't like pens. They like pencils. Take a pencil and a piece of paper and describe it because by putting words and really looking at it, all of a sudden it's coming together. You're, you're describing it. Then after you describe it, for those of you that are not artists, maybe you won't know how to analyze it, but most of you do probably know this. Like, you know, why did he use pink? Why do they use blue? Why does this big shape is on the right, but then there's a dark shape over here? Obviously, they're trying to bring balance, repetition, rhythm. All of these things come from nature. So you got to think about it when you're analyzing it. And then you do an interpretation. I really think that this art is about, once I did it with a kid, he was like, I think five, and he's like, this house, it was a house, and it had neon colors, and they're like, why neon colors? And we started thinking neon is very 
it's not a natural color. It's a plastic fake color. And the house seems a little bit off kilter. Guess what? The artist had grown up in a family that had drug addicts. Her parents were drug addicts. This was a reflection of her life. So you see how that makes sense? So then you interpret this. Of course, sometimes knowing a little bit more about it later. And then you judge. Is it a good piece? Is it working well for me? Anyhow, this method is the most prominent and thoroughly examined art criticism method format in art education. Guess what we have in the Bible? <laughs> Daniel. What did Daniel do when he saw the king? Right? God gave him the image. He gave him the image. Then Daniel described it. He analyzed it by telling him the different materials that were there. And we, till this day, are doing interpretation about this image, right? Because it's, it's one thing that encapsulates this complex idea all in one image. You will never forget it. It's the easiest way to learn. It's the best way to learn. For teachers, this is amazing art. Um, and we know till this day, for instance, that interpretation of the legs of iron, Rome was very harsh. They killed with the crucifixion. And so we have these materials. We interpret the kingdoms they come from. So guess what? Seventh-day Adventists are good art historians. So I have a whole following. Great. <laughs> we can see throughout time that art helps us with forth telling or telling the past. So this is where we can use it for prophetic interpretation. We can say, during this period, what was important here? What do you see? A huge church, right? People would come far and wide for pilgrimages to these churches. They would come and bring all of their money because at the time, salvation was at stake. And they would give everything to build these expensive monuments for God. And when you're doing something for God, you can't just put a puny thing together. You're looking at something high, something that makes you feel small in the grandness of God, right? All of these things tell us a value system in this time period. On the other hand, here is Hans Hoffmann. He was German. He came to the United States, became a prominent modern artist here. We're talking a completely different style. This is talking about fragmentation. This is modern, secular, no longer religious. There's no divine, you know, or an image of a story. There's no storytelling, partly because these artists of modern period had lost their faith. There was nothing above and beyond paint on canvas. And all we're doing here is sensuality of the eye and the images of the colors and the push and pull of how these colors act next to each other. He was inspired by jazz music. And jazz is very uh, spontaneous. An artist, jazz musician, sits down and he just knows the chords and he's just using. So he's, he's doing the same thing. He's just using his colors and he's creating push and pull kind of feelings because Blues recede, warm colors come to the foreground. He's just playing with that. This is all reflective of the different time periods, and it tells us value systems of the past. So it's telling you, and there's so much to it. I mean, you can talk about the styles, okay? So here you have painterly style. It's a romanticist painting. And the romanticists believed that they needed to express their feelings of strong desire or, you know, 
sublime kind of situations where you have lions attacking in this very exotic place and you the brush strokes are seen because the artist is important expressing themselves is important and they're showing the brush strokes while in the medieval age that wasn't important so you see a very linear kind of delineated artwork because it's telling you a story you're illiterate you're coming to church and it's telling you very clearly the story of Jesus or the story of Mary. So it was didactic, very um, attempt to teach people. So the styles go along with the intention of every age. So in that sense, art can be used to understand the past. So let's look at a sum that might be important to us as Seventh-day Adventists to try to understand how the Catholic Church really hasn't changed in a sense the same things that they're depicting here in this fresco is still important to them today. This fresco was painted by um, let's see, in Andrea de Frenzi. This is in uh, Florence. That's why it's Andrea de, de, de Frenzi. And it was in 1366. And this actually is called The Way to Salvation. Now, if you don't know anything about the Roman Catholic Church, they do believe that if for you to obtain salvation, you have to become part of the mother church. You have to fall under their umbrella. Salvation still comes through the church. It's very small, but I'm going to have bigger pictures here. On the bottom, you see the clergy, the pope sitting in front of the church. In the center, you will see the Dominican priest, because this was at a Dominican uh, chapel. The Dominican priests allowing people to confess to them and then pointing the way to heaven and then all of the saved saints, because of them, go into the gate, and St. Peter's at the gate, and you enter heaven through the church. So this is a very telling uh, uh, fresco of the theology of the Catholic Church. The church wanted, to, of course, at this time when they painted this, they wanted to reunite the powers of the time under their control. Um, this was at the center, let me show you who's here. Um, we have Pope Urban V at the center, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV of Bohemia. This is actually right before Jan Hus, um, a few years before, and then several years before actually. And then the King of Cyprus, Peter I, and Cardinal Gilles Albornoz from Spain. So again, uniting the forces of the then known world and the emperors and the kings to come together. They were especially concerned about the Turks and the infidels in this, um, in this uh, fresco. And if you will look very carefully, there are sheep here. Do you see that the little sheep? That's, of course, the saints, the good people. And then these dogs with white and black spots are basically represented, representing the Dominican priests who are supposed to save people. You see their uniform also was white and black like the dogs. And look at what the dogs are doing. The dogs are attacking wolves. Um, there's even a certain Peter Martyr who was supposedly uh, asked by the church to be and persecute heretics and to kill them. Um, unfortunately, they uh, actually killed him on one of his journeys, and then he became a saint. Um, so here, if you look, 
There's three levels of salvation with the priests in the middle. Um, the dogs are attacking the wolves or the heretics, who were at the time people like the Waldensians, the Albigenians, who were not, um, they were more, um, they weren't Protestant, but the, the Waldensians probably were depicted here as the wolves. Um, so you see clearly that they are the way to salvation. So there was always this theology, and as far as we know, this theology has not changed. If you see also here at the gate, you see St. Peter with the keys, right? He received the keys of heaven. It was through him that you would obtain salvation. Um, he was counted as the first bishop of Rome, or pope, and he holds the keys to the gates of, of heaven. So after that fresco had been painted in Florence, actually the, the fresco has a church. The church in Florence had not been um, built yet, but this was the idea that they had of what they wanted to do with the church. You know that these uh, Italian states competed with one another. They always wanted to outdo one another and make a bigger church and impress their, uh, the people visiting. Um, but there, right after this fresco, there was a huge schism. It's called the Western Schism. My husband talked about the East and the West Schism this morning, but this was a schism within the Western Church. So it was terrible because at one point there were several popes at the same time. Um, the Italians, for many years, Rome had been kind of, in the Middle Ages, I've read books where Rome was just really bad. It was, the, the sewer system wasn't working. There was no water running into that city. People, there, there was one book that I read that they didn't even bury their dead very well. They were out in the streets. I mean, it was bad. So the popes, the French popes, didn't want to go back to Rome. But the Italians wanted the popes back in Rome. This is, after all, where Peter was buried and died. So there was a time when there were several popes, and there, the situation got so bad that the, the church clergy, and you see the different people didn't know which pope to be aligned with. So certain countries kind of aligned themselves with different popes. Um, eventually, they elected a third pope and wanted to depose of the other popes, but nobody stepped down. There was a time when the church had three popes. This is precisely the time when Wycliffe decided this is ridiculous, and he started reading the Bible and started writing his books um, for going back to the Word of God, and you have also then Huss, who read his writings and became influenced by that. So this line keeps coming um, towards the Protestant Reformation. A few years later, the popes finally decided to just be, they decided at the Council of Constance, actually, when Huss was burned at the stake. They decided which pope was going to be the one and only pope, and they decided to go back to Rome. Um, the pope uh, was Urban VI. He actually um, persecuted, the well, he, he mandated a, a general persecution. He wanted to clean out the heretics. And coming back to Rome, they wanted to, of course, build it back up. They needed to build it back up to be worthy of the eternal city. And again, art comes as a heavy artillery. Now, this is before the Reformation. So, but they were making a case for building a new St. Peter's. They were making a case for rebuilding Rome. 
So this fresco, by the way, is in the Sistine Chapel. So I know most people go to the Sistine Chapel to see Michelangelo's ceiling, but have you noticed there's several beautiful paintings on the side as well? This is one of them. And the entire program, because these artists and popes took forever to plan these churches out, it's a sermon preached all over. It's not just coincidence. Everything is chosen very carefully. The entire program of the Sistine Chapel is to legitimize the papal authority and to legitimize uh, their, their, especially even selling of indulgences. So if you look here, Jesus is giving the keys to Peter, who was the first pope. And this is pope uh, during the time of Pope Sixtus IV. And on top of both Arch de Triomphe, which is French, it's Arch of Triumph, these were very typical of monuments that the Roman emperors would build after a victory. And on top of it, it's written um, that it, um, the Roman arches identify Sixtus IV as a Roman political and religious ruler. These structures were memorials to victory built by Roman emperors, but now they're aligning themselves with the Roman emperors. And the octagonal church at the center is a reference to Solomon's temple. And of course, I don't know if you know the Hagia Sophia in Turkey, but um, when uh, Justinian built it in 500, he said, Solomon, I have surpassed thee. So you can see how the popes have always tried to keep this line between the Roman emperors and the Solomonic power of, the, of Israel at its height. Um, the image served as propaganda campaign, campaigning to build St. Peter's. And in 1502, just 15 years after this fresco, St. Peter's started. They started the project. Now, St. Peter's, um, this is before it was built. They already had uh, ideas of how they wanted it. These prints were made by artists. St. Peter's used to look like this. This is the old St. Peter's. And it was basically very, you can imagine, have you guys ever been in a building church project? It's very controversial. It's very difficult. But you can imagine how difficult this would have been. Because the St. Peter's that you see here, the old St. Peter's, had been donated to the church by Constantine himself. Constantine was revered later on as the first pope, um, the Roman emperor. And so this must have been extremely controversial. Nevertheless, they tore it down. St. Peter's was built there because this is traditionally where Peter was martyred. Um, and so it had to be in that location. And they had a new plan for this gorgeous. How many of you have been to St. Peter's? It's so large, you almost have vertigo in there. Like, are you serious? That person is that small next to that pillar? Wow, I can't. It's weird. It's so big and, and ostentatious. It's crazy. So they needed a lot of money, and that's why they started selling indulgences, and that's why it broke the camel's back with Luther, and he could no longer stay quiet. Um, so here you have this fresco threatened. Also, those who did not agree. If you look to the, uh, here on both sides, there are images of the tribute money referring to Christ, saying to the disciples, you know, we're paying taxes. So they're basically saying, Christ agreed, 
to the authorities and paid taxes, why can't you pay indulgences? This is what we're telling you to do. And on the other side, they were referring to um, another story when on the right there's the stoning of Christ, referring to the story found in John 8, which tells of unbelieving Jews who did not accept Christ as the I am, and then how he who belongs to God hears what God says. Who are they thinking is God? Of course, Jesus and Peter and the popes. So we needed to pay our taxes. We needed not to be like the Jews that didn't pay and didn't give the money and didn't believe in Christ. So don't be like them. Please give us the money to build St. Peter's. Very important message all through the Sistine Chapel. Right across from, the, from this fresco, across the way on the other side of the hall, you will see this fresco by Sandro Botticelli, who paint, he's a very famous uh, early Renaissance artist. He painted the birth of Venus. Um, he painted this, the punishment of Korah, Dathan, and Abiran. Basically, this image is also threatening those people who didn't believe in Aaron as the priest. Remember that story in the Bible where the ground opened and everybody fell through because they wanted to be equal to the priests, and God said, no, I've elected special people. And Aaron is here with the papal tiara. Um, <laughs> Moses is, is, of course, bringing down upon them strange fire from heaven. Um, and yeah, this is definitely a comparison to the Pope with Aaron and what happened at, um, in the, when the Israelites did not follow procedure. Um, so these are all over the Sistine Chapel. This was especially why Luther did, did the Passionale, because of the sale of indulgences to build these expensive um, works of art. The Sistine Chapel, is, I think they get 60, a huge amount of visitors every year. They're trying to actually control the crowds because <clears throat> there's just too many. So art was very well used in the Catholic Church. Well, let's go back to the reformers now. A few years later, um, at the Council of Trent, they had to bring this council at Trent, which is the city in Italy, precisely to deal with the Protestant Reformation. And at the Council of Trent, there were several things that they discussed, but one of it that was very important was art and the use of, of art. They had been upset with some artists that painted Germans as sitting on the table of Jesus and they were going to excommunicate these artists. They even were upset with Michelangelo. In the Sistine Chapel, there is the Last Judgment at the front, but they were originally all naked. Um, and, and one of uh, the cardinals said, how can we do this? This is like a brothel. We need to cover those parts up. So uh, Senzania, another artist, went ahead and went back and put a little bit of loincloth um, over the body parts. So they tried, they, they did, you know, try to improve things, but they also made a very clear resolution that they were going to use art and architecture to propagate this image that we came out on top, that we're okay, that we're strong, that the Catholic Church has been victorious. And this basically gives birth to the Baroque type of art, which is very celebratory. They, the Renaissance popes, and let me, um, clearer aims and regulation for art were created at the Council of Trent to justify the church's position in the usage of art. 
The efforts coming from the council gave birth to the Baroque style and the Baroque expansion of Rome. Architectural renovations, renovations were unprecedented during the 17th and early 18th centuries. Beginning with Pope Paul III, the Counter-Reformation popes widened, paved, and straightened the roads of Rome to accommodate for pilgrimages, moving statues and obelisks. And I know this is a little small, but do you see these huge um, obelisks here and there? They moved. These obelisks are huge. They had been brought to Rome from way back. And they were in inappropriate places. And these these uh, popes of the Counter-Reformation viewed themselves as Roman emperors, and they didn't make any bones about it. And they needed to reconfigurate the roads so that when you come to the Piazza del Popolo, which is the main entrance of Rome, it would be a straight road to the Vatican. And if there was a curve, there would be a, 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 one of these markers so you could know, oh, that's a piazza. This is a place of an important church so that they would know where to go. Some of the popes would make prints of all of the uh, city planning and changing that, and all of the artwork that they did. There are complaints, actual letters of people that lived in the city because they would basically bulldoze your house down if it was in the road that they wanted to expand, and they didn't care. So even the, the Italian population was getting a little bit fed up with some of these very ostentatious popes who wanted to make, of course, Rome as this divine eternal city. These pope popes founded schools of art and commissioned some of the greatest architects like Michelangelo, Carlo, Carlo Moderno, Bernini, to resurrect Rome again as the eternal city. Michelangelo was summoned almost immediately after the Council of Trent to renovate the Palazzo Nuovo or Campidoglio. And he put the statue of Marcus Aurelius, it was believed right to be uh, Constantine, right at the center, because the Campidoglio is where the popes wanted to take over uh, the, the, the governing of the city as well. Um, he also, Michelangelo, did the central dome of St. Peter's that is still there today. Um, they reclaimed imperial heritage of control and distribution of water. The Roman emperors gave their citizens public theaters and public baths, but above all, they gave abundant water as a way to show both their generosity and their power. The Trevi Fountain, famous Trevi Fountain, was the first public fountain of Rome since antiquity to work again. It reminds us of the Roman triumphal arch and stands for a miracle, both a theatrical tour de force and a serious and subtle restaging of Moses' striking the rock in the desert, and it sets the emotional stage for the papal palace a short distance away. Um, they took this style all over the world as Jesuits came to the New Americas to conquer it and to establish the church. This is the Baroque style. By the way, this is Minas Gerais. This is where I was born. And this is very, very rich with gold. And all of the gold went back to Portugal, which then went to the Roman church to em embellish their churches, which are still, is still there today. So the Baroque style has been called the style of persu persuasion or the style of counter-reformation. Um, you see this, this beautiful, later Bernini designed this amazing colonnade. And if you notice, this is, of course, a marker. And above the marker, which is pagan, you know, Egyptian 
obelisks, they would stick a, a statue of a saint. Kind of like to say, Papal Rome has won over the pagan world. And these arms are basically the arms of the church embracing the world. That's the symbolism. And here you have all of the saints lined up as they believe the saints, through the merits of the saints, you're going to obtain salvation. And you pray to the saints because of that. So the art is filled, filled with messages of what the Catholics believed. But it was until um, the 17th century, the church declared the Counter-Reformation effort a success and celebrated its triumph. But they wanted to expand and go all over the world. The church has never been small in its thinking. They think on a global scale. Um, so by the 17th and 18th centuries, Rome used multiple tactics and fronts in their effort. They wanted to keep up with science and renewing the calendar and also keeping acquainted with maps um, because the Jesuits were aggressively obtaining new lands and they were fascinated with maps. And maps before this period had been more um, three-dimensional. So the artists would sit at a corner of the city and kind of make three-dimensional and then make little roads and try to make maps make sense. But it wasn't until Leonardo da Vinci, actually, that he and they found some maps from the Roman period that they started realizing you could make iconographic maps or maps that are completely flat, just de you know, delineating the roads. Um, and they really loved maps. They wanted accurate maps. This is the science age, the age of, of precise you know, objectivity. No longer was it subjective. You even have paintings by Johannes Vermeer here. And if you'll notice carefully, this is um, the art of painting. It's in the title of the painting. You'll notice in the back there's a map. If you were a cultured British uh, gentleman, you would go to Rome. And there you would acquire maps. And then you would hang them in your, in your house. And you would discuss the places you, would go, you had traveled. Um, at this time, Everybody wanted accurate maps. That's why some people still today collect these old maps. They're quite interesting. Um, one of the maps, the first map that was completely accurate, and if I had access to the internet, I would show you something. This map is made by Noli. Giovanni Battista Noli is his full name. He was so precise. He measured everything. He measured the interior of churches exterior and he used this triangulation method to get precision and this was the first precise map of Rome it was a watershed in map making and um, if you if you had the internet you could overlay Google Maps right over this it's precise it's perfect and it was done in 1748 they didn't he didn't. He just measured it all out perfectly. Wow. Yeah, and I will show you how he's so proud of himself. He actually shows him his instruments and how he did this on, on the bottom of the map, which is very interesting. And that's what we're going to talk about now. He was a surveyor. Amazing. Um, but we're going to focus, instead of the map, um, we're going to focus on the illustrations underneath. You have to understand where maps came from. This is a map from the Middle Ages. They were ideological maps, obviously. You have Jerusalem at the center of the world, then you had Africa, Asia, and Europa. 
Um, of course, this, you couldn't get very far with this map. It was ideological, but now we were in a scientific age and precision was important. So um, here is the bottom of this ancient map, or this old map. Um, the rise of modernism and its concern of objectivity and precision, Noli's work became possible, yet remained inextricably woven with the ideology of the religious establishment. So we're going to look at this ideology here. You know, folks, sometimes we, we look at these prophetic uh, visions of women and all this stuff in the Bible, and then you read, you, you understand the art, and you, don't, you realize that this is so well illustrated by the Catholic Church themselves. And this is what I'm going to give you. Um, there are religious and political undertones in the images here. Let me show you what I'm talking about. If you look here in, in context of our prophetic interpretation, here is the goddess Roma, okay? Reflected on the other side of this scientific map is the ecclesia, which is the word for church as a woman. And I'll, I'll look closer here. So they're looking, echoing one side of the map with the other and this continuation of this woman, the Roma with the ecclesia being two sides of the same coin. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, let me show you. Uh, at the bottom here, you have what they had discovered recently at the time. Um, it was a, a base for a column from the Roman period. This Antonian base, how many minutes do I have? Fifteen. Yes, Michael wants to make sure I mention pagan and papal Rome. Same lady, two different time periods. Um, at this column base had been found archaeologically, uh, they gave credit to the Pope that was currently in, um, in his reign. And they put this here because this column was going to go in front of a very famous building because they continually saw the continuation between pagan and papal Rome. And I'll show you what was going to be. Here you also see the instruments that Noli had to do this work. And for the first time, a map was actually direction, the direction followed true north. Um, so he's one of the first map makers to, to do true north. Um, here is, again, the Antonian column base. And the original idea here, like I said, they would put the church victorious over pagan Rome. The original idea was never executed, but Piranesi, a very famous artist of the time, was going to put this sculpture over the base. This sculpture has the church holding the cross, sitting on the world, and she has the cup of, of, you know, of Christ, and then you have justice. The church has always wanted to dominate not just the Vatican, but the world. Because you have to understand that their theology includes um, establishing the kingdom of God on earth through their, uh, through their popes and their uh, magisterium. And this is the, 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 the column base was going to go into the Piazza de Montecitorio, which is where they would do justice and elements of, of dispensing justice to the, to the city. Um, on the bottom, beginning from the left, we see the temple of Castor and Pollux, um, perhaps the most ancient, recognizable, and central feature of the Roman Forum. This temple was an icon of the ancient Rome and was at the center of the current archaeological speculations of the time. The temple of Castor and Pollux 
was built commemorate, in commemoration of the Roman victory over the legendary Tarquinius Superbus. Um, and it commemorated a temple, became one of, one of the earliest locations where the Senate would convene as a political and religious matters were closely bound during the early Roman Empire. While the artist frames the bottom left side with the dilapidated and idea of the, con sorry, there are the artists frame the bottom left with the dilapidated pillars of this Roman temple. The right side echoes the ideas of continuity of the Basilica of St. John the Lateran. Now the St. John Lateran, if you ever go to Rome, you have the Vatican on one side, St. John Lateran is on the other side of, of the Roman city of Rome. The Lateran church had been where popes resided for many years before they moved to uh, St. Peter's and they remodeled it. So it was very important and this is where the, the uh, church was basically administering power. And so this idea of, of the Romans having religious and political power executed in this building is the same idea echoed going on here. And now look at the details of what's going on between these two ladies. Roma, when she's sitting down, now this comes into a little bit of studying in art history, so even if you looked at it, you probably wouldn't know this. Roma, when she's sitting, which represents the city of Rome, the goddess Roma, when she's sitting down, it's because she has been victorious. If she's standing, she's going to war. But if she's sitting, she has been victorious. And to make things a kind of funny, of course, the sense of humor again, whoops, sorry. Um, they put here next to her on both sides, you have the river Tiber represented as this, as this man. Um, he has an oar that has been broken and a cornucopia with, with lavish fruits that, because the river provided water, that provided plants to grow and all of that. But he is sitting next to her and right next to, on the other side of her, there is the she-wolf with Remus and Romulus um, all dilapidated, the babies, you know, that Rome is famous for believing that they were the original fathers of Rome. Um, you have her actually with the crown that she kind of yanked out of the head of Tiber here. So there's a little sense of humor. But basically, um, again, here the Ecclesia, I'll talk to you more about the Ecclesia at the Lateran. And the Ecclesia has, in the Lateran at the time when it was renovated, has the, the name of Pope Clement VII, or the 12th, sorry, Pontificus Maximus, again, this Roman title given to them all over Rome. The facade was renovated during his time. Let's look here uh, why she's uh, separated by this statue. Um, if you look carefully, and you know, in the ancient, in the literature at the time, every time Roma was sitting, do you see she's sitting there and all these enemies on both sides on her feet. Here's another Roma with enemies on both sides. She has conquered these people. Um, she had basically, in this image, conquered, conquered Rome. Okay, she had been the ruler of nature itself. Um, and then here you see her again, and this is at the Campidoglio where Michelangelo renovated. 
The popes, the re re Renaissance popes, would actually imitate Roman emperors. They would get on white horses and they would process throughout Rome and actually go under these Arch of Triumph. And the ending point of this procession would be the Campidoglio, where they wanted to get temporal or earthly power mixed with religion. And at the very stopping of this procession, you had Roma with her enemies conquered. She's sitting. Um, there was a statue of that there. So this was very, no, they knew what they were doing when they did that imagery um, in the map. This statue was later stolen or taken by Napoleon, and today it's at the Louvre, the museum. It's been restored during the Renaissance. That's why the babies are rejoined um, and the, um, the ore is rebuilt. But this is the river Tiber, the god Tiber, represented at the bottom. You see how the, the crown has been taken away, and she's holding the crown, and the babies were separated from him, kind of like Ancient Rome is dead, but there's a continuation with, between the Roman woman from one side with the church on the other. It's very interesting. Um, there they are, united to Tiber. In the back, you see the Arch of Triumph of Constantine, referencing the first Roman emperor. Again, the victory of Constantine. Um, and she's looking now longingly to this amazing image of the Ecclesia. Ah, I'm going over time. Maybe not. I have 10 minutes. Um, here's the Ecclesia. This is very important. So here she is being crowned. Now remember what I told you about the tiara. The papal tiara, the triple tiara, is basically her receiving now imperial power. There was a time in the church that they wanted so much power over the world. They were absolutists. They wanted absolute power. They still kind of do. I think that's the, the idea of the kingdom of God that they have. And if you notice, this was actually, again, a, a theme that was very prevalent at the time by other artists. Here's Roma with all of the angels around her, old ancient Rome and new Rome. Here's the Ecclesia and all the angels around her. There's this connection between old Rome and new Rome and the woman. Here you see several symbols that are important to recognize. You have the chiro, which is the victory flag or symbol in which um, Constantine conquered uh, Maxentius. Uh, this is, again, the first Roman emperor that legalized Christianity, very important to the Catholic Church. So they have his flag there. Um, you will also see the crown being given to her, the crown of the world, the imperial Rome. And she has the keys. Do you see that? She's holding the keys of St. Peter, and the world is being handed to her by an angel. Then, if you notice, in the shadows, lurking in the shadows, you will see what another kind of... Um, crown that they sometimes put on that is more religious. It's, it's called the uh, mitre, mitre? The, yeah, the mitre. The mitre is more when their, their, their shepherd role, not so much their reigning regal role that's being taken away from her and her crown is being put. So there's an exchange of crowns. And, and then next to that mitre, you will see, um, again, this is the Campidoglio. This is where they wanted to rule the world from. 
that Michelangelo had renovated after the uh, Council of Trent. So all of these things are very, very intentionally put together. That's the one I talked about. And then on this here, connecting, if you notice, there's, there's a, a composition that goes from the mitre to the shepherd's rod, and then the world and the new crown. So it's almost like they were going to do both, but this was slightly set aside, and now the main idea was to rule the world. Their ostentatiousness was so much that it annoyed the other emperors that also wanted to rule the world, right, during um, imperialist time of, of history. So the papal efforts to rebuild Rome, this is uh, Krautmeier, sorry, Krautheimer, he's a good historian. Papal efforts to rebuild Rome during the Counter-Reformation of the 16th and 17th centuries focused on reestablishing Rome as the religious center of the world. But the major architectural and artistic renovations had cost the church greatly, depleting its financial resources. Already by the 17th century, Rome was losing its position as the world's religious authority and political center. Absolutist governments in France and in Portugal started to kick out the, the, um, the Jesuits from their country. They didn't want the, the Pope having control of their, of their empire as well. And we know that this antagonistic feeling finally culminated in the French Revolution where they became anti-Christian, they killed thousands of priests, they did not want anything to do with the church anymore. Unfortunately, they threw the baby out with the water as well, um, but understandably so. And this um, is when we know that Berthier went and put the Pope in prison. This was um, when they had power. This was the, the Daniel 7. They was, were given into his hands until a time and times in the dividing of times, and the little horn grew. But we know that when Napoleon sent Berthier to imprison the Pope, this is amazing. These guys were so ostentatious. They thought they were going to rule the world, and all of a sudden, this slash comes at their side, and they're wounded. They're really wounded. He put them in prison, humiliated him, even apparently the, the, the um, Italians weren't too sad because of all of the things that they had done to annoy everybody with their, uh, with their desire for power. Um, and this was an amazing turn of events. But they had it kind of coming. And the Lord had prophesied it years in advance. And you can see this ostentatiousness in the art. You can see it in the architecture. It's all over. Um, what has happened from this to this? <laughs> Magazines are celebrating a comeback of the Roman Empire. There is nothing that does not agree with prophecy, and we can be certain of that. Despite having a good, friendly face, humble demeanor, the position he holds is still as a mediator. The church's position is that you can obtain salvation only through the sacraments, the tradition of the saints, is still there. The Roman Catholic Church's very reason for being to establish the kingdom of God on earth through them, their aim was not changed for all of these centuries. Indulgences are still dispensed today. Sunday is still the day of worship. And remember what I said at the beginning of the lecture, that is the signature of Jesus in our hearts 
The signature of his creation and recreation in us is the Sabbath and not the Sunday. We must choose who to follow. We must choose clearly what world we're going to live in, this world or the next. What kingdom are we going to be loyal to, this one or the next? I pray that God will give you the power, the courage, and the boldness to be like the reformers, to stand up against the world's greatest power, and to be faithful to him. Thank you. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.